welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past and future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com slash startup. Our guest today is Hillary Kortner, one of the founders and co-CEOs of Hilda. Hilma creates natural remedies for your medicine cabinet that are backed by science. Previously, Hillary worked at the wonderful company, Fiji Water, and was part of the founding team at Jet Black. On this episode, I especially enjoyed learning from Hillary about how she thinks about the co-CEO structure for a business, her insight that led her to founding Hilma, and some of the effects COVID has had on her business. Without further ado, here's Hillary. Hillary, thank you so much for taking the time and joining me. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. So I know you have a lot of experience in consumer products and also in different capacities. I mean, branding, strategy, finance. What attracted you first to interest in consumer and also then to entrepreneurship? So my first professional experience in the world of consumer was actually in investment banking at Credit Suisse in a retail consumer products coverage group. And I can't say there was a lot more to that decision beyond kind of general interest in the category and lack of the draw. I went to Columbia undergrad and did not have any academic exposure to finance like many analysts. And I thought I would be more interested in the job and better at it in an industry space that was a bit more tangible to me. So that kind of set me down the path in the consumer world and kind of accidentally in a position specifically to see the the growth towards better for you brands and kind of the distinct shift in consumer taste and expectations towards products that had more transparency and were better for the world by nature of the transactions that I worked on there. But as far as entrepreneurship, I've always had the bug, um, as people often say, uh, because I really love just building things and really having hands in different problems cross-functionally. And I always get super excited about filling gaps for consumers. And that's really how Hilma was born, um, out of a realization that consumers wanted something on their pharmacy shelves, but couldn't find it and kind of the presentation that they needed. What were also like some of like the insight that you were seeing, whether was that more like metrics driven? Were you also, you know, doing some market research on your end as well? I'd love to just kind of hear about like to dive in more on like the insight. First start by talking about the kind of the aha moment as we refer to it. I have two co-founders, Nina and Lily, and we all kind of came to kind of the original insight for Hilma from different positive experiences with natural approaches to our health. But the original spark was kind of over a vitamin C packet, which is obviously very relevant today. So Lily had a cold, Nina had a very common kind of sweet and brightly colored option on hand. And they kind of both had a moment of like, this is pretty strange that we have this product. This is our best option in a moment where we're trying to be healthy. So they kind 
kind of took this realization to me and together we really began kind of officially diligencing and kind of digging in in the way that you just described, both by seeing the size of the market opportunity, both in the traditional OTC space, as well as the growth specifically in the natural space and in herbals. But from a consumer perspective, we did hundreds of interviews to validate that other people like us were kind of one, seeking cleaner labels, not only in food, beverage, personal care, household products, but they wanted that in their medicine cabinet and that there wasn't a brand that was really meeting that need. And what we found was that the thing kind of holding people back from kind of mass adoption was that skepticism of the way that herbal products and natural options were formulated um, and not really believing that they were grounded in science. So that is sort of where we're stepping in to provide a scientifically backed natural alternative. So, I mean, obviously for any company, branding is so important. And I know as you touched on, you have in your branding this combination of science and nature working together to form this new category, the clinical herbal. And tell me about how you think about differentiation in your product and the current competitive landscape that's currently out there. Sure. So I think that comes back to sort of where we see our main differentiation in terms of our scientific approach. So like the clinical half of that clinical herbal So herbals have obviously been around for centuries and today the natural space is competitive across kind of different dimensions, but more so on kind of the habitual vitamin side. So where we're entering both in terms of the use case being kind of an acute moment of need, but also the way that we formulate our products are kind of our two main points of difference. So on the science side, we only formulate with ingredients that have substantial amount of previous clinical research backing them. So what that means is we're not bringing the next hot ingredient to market. And when we sort of trade in that buzz factor, we get with what we hope is trust from the consumer. We also work with a board of doctors on every formulation. And the most unique is that we've invested in clinical research on all of our resulting products versus just that first step uh, of leaning on existing. So that is a higher standard relative to the market today um, as far as the natural space. We also kind of see our competitive set sitting in the OTC category as well. Right. No, that that makes a lot of sense. I love that you not only looked at the characteristics and the nutrition on the actual ingredients that you're using, but also doing your own clinical studies as well on your product to make sure that there are results. I'd imagine that it must have been a bit of a longer process than launching since you're doing all these trials and really focusing on the product. Yes, it took a while. I think that we hope that that product development cycle will get faster as we go. And we already have seen that it has gotten faster, but the first round definitely took time and is certainly a longer, longer lead time than categories that aren't in the health space that people aren't ingesting. What were maybe some of the hurdles at the very beginning when you were like in the developing the product, you know, eventually figuring out the manufacturing side or just other aspects? I mean, it's a tough process to find a manufacturer when you have stringent criteria there. It's a difficult world to get information about. And so it was just a long process to find the right partner. And then the other side of that that was challenging from the outset was accurately assessing timelines 
minds. I think there's a lot of unknowns. And even when people do their best to convey what they think, um, as far as the amount of time things will take, there's always things that come up. So kind of back to that, my original comment that we now kind of, we know the things that can happen and we know how to avoid some of them. And we know which ones actually truly are you know, up to fate. <laughs> so we've gotten better at managing those processes, but identifying the right partner and accurately planning as far as time were probably the two hardest things. I've had a couple other co-CEOs and I'm always fascinated, especially for, for listeners that are looking to start a company with um, that co-CEO structure, how you think about complementary skills, staying in your own lane, but also being collaborative. Would love to just hear about maybe some examples or things that you both think about of these kind of three different sets. Yeah, definitely. So we gave a lot of thought to this dynamic at the outset. And I think in general, as far as people who are considering going down this path, I'd say like best practice and the best thing that we did was have a lot of the hard conversations up front. And we were really honest about with ourselves and with each other about where our skills really lay and the way that we would go about making decisions because we actually both came from pretty similar backgrounds in the sense that I started in investment banking and did corporate strategy. Nina started in consulting. We met in business school. We had experience at startups. So for us, the establishing lanes really was the most important thing and figuring out a way that we would make decisions was the most important thing. The way that we kind of decided who would manage what is we actually, we just like sat in a coffee shop and we mocked up the different areas that would be important to the business and we kind of created a split. And so today when the team is small, we obviously are very collaborative in terms of being resources for each other on how to make decisions. And we, we do a lot of upfront work to provide each other with thoughtful context. But the, what we've decided with each other is that if there is a disagreement, the person who has to deal the most with the, with the result of the decision kind of has a heavier vote, but that actually hasn't happened too much so far. So I think our process has worked pretty well. And we, we do very much attribute that to the way that we've set out the roles at the outset. What do you think of some of your responsibilities or kind of some of your lanes, even though it is very, very collaborative, but like your part to Hilma? So we kind of at the outset divided it based on channels as the first part. And we also both wanted pretty even exposure from like consumer to back of house. So that was what we both felt good about. And we also felt as far as sequencing and timing of, of what would be busy when would be well balanced. So Nina manages product development and kind of upstream supply chain. I manage everything downstream supply chain, our direct-to-consumer channel, finance and performance marketing, and she does our kind of offline retail. So that is more kind of longer lead sales driven right now, but we'll transition to be off more operational down the line when we're really in those channels. So that's how we divvied it up. So how did you think initially like your launch strategy and also like how you thought about like growth and distribution at the early stages? Our strategy from the outset was 
very much tied to how we saw our channel sequencing. So for us, we wanted to start in direct to consumer for the opportunity to really build a brand in a category that requires some education. So to create an on-site experience where people can really learn about what herbals do, how they work, and create a place for our community to interact and engage. But also, of course, like the typical benefits of starting direct to consumer and that we get feedback quickly, we can iterate quickly on our products before there's a true, like very large investment behind our inventory. But with that, we knew we had to be omni-channel from the beginning, just by nature of the way that people shop this category. So we invested in setting up um, a footprint of specialty retailers as signaling points, but also to kind of build that retail muscle from the outset to understand operationally what we need to be prepared for. And we do see our future scaling through traditional retail, just again, because the reality of the penetration on this channel on e-com but also just the way that people shop and where people look for these products. But we have decided to accelerate Amazon um, and we will be launching on Amazon in a couple weeks. So obviously on our toes as far as our, our original plans, but the, the main the strategy largely has stayed the same. First of all, that's awesome. That's really great that you've, you know, accelerated Amazon and really are investing heavily in e-commerce. And I'm glad that you weren't too exposed into retail before COVID. For me, just as a podcast hope, I never know how the company is doing until I talk to them. I might have an idea, but for example, I've had companies on the show that heavily rely on retail. So right now it's really hard times. And then I've had other companies that don't actually have as much of a retail footprint. And a lot of their sales relied on e-commerce and they're high and flying for the most part. So I always just uh, think that it's, I never know kind of what to expect, to be honest with you, when I'm talking to companies. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's been a strange time for everyone. And I think it's had kind of unexpected impacts in a lot of cases. And that's very much a result of just like, product interest in the way that people have been behaving, which we could have never predicted, but also obviously very much in in channels and, and which ones have been able to weather the storm. What online channels so far have been your most successful? So we really have only been focusing on our direct consumer channel. So Amazon is our first foray into e-commerce and we that will be a big part of our strategy going forward. So we're super excited to get things up and running there. If you could pinpoint one thing that was most critical to your success thus far, what would it be? I'd say as a team, as a founding team um, with Nina and Lily, I think we hold ourselves to pretty high standards as far as just like preparation and thoughtfulness. We always try to think a couple steps ahead. And I think having kind of a three-person founding team is sort of a good forcing mechanism to be able to digest like information that you find and kind of the area of the world that you're focused on and being able to like convey that to others. And I think that really has been a strength for us. Why initially did you choose to fundraise at the beginning? I think we couldn't bootstrap ourselves and we needed to move quickly. So we never really considered a different path for us. It was a foregone conclusion that that was something we would need to do. Got it. 
Got it. So what was your fundraising strategy? I guess from your finance background, did you already know venture capitalists and angel investors? So our fundraising strategy, we started with, we raised a pre-seed round first that was what we called friends and family, but filled with people who were founders or our founders who we'd worked with or for or were close to people um, in our network. And that was a really, we're really still so glad we, we started there just because it created a kind of a bench of advisors that we we talk to all the time. And it's a casual relationship and a super fruitful one because a lot of those people are operators and some of the best advice and referrals we've gotten have come from that that group. Um, And then we raised our seed round, which was institutional from Forerunner primarily. And in that process, we really were just selecting for partners that we felt we could truly be collaborative with and who were open-minded, but also drew from experience and other successful consumer brands. And for this phase of our growth, we were specifically looking for people who had great experience with direct-to-consumer brands, just because that is kind of the first chapter of our story. And in terms of like DNVBs, which I know you so far you've started as a DNVB right now, I know it's quite out of favor with a lot of VCs. Was it quite difficult fundraising just because of the landscape or did that not really affect you as much? Well, we've never positioned ourselves as only a direct-to-consumer brand. I think we've always spoken to the fact that there will be sequencing and that we are an omni-channel brand and we we need to be an omni-channel brand. So I think we actually were probably at the time that we were fundraising, we, I think we were right there with kind of changing the tune because we very much saw the writing on the wall as far as how that path can be limited and it isn't a strategy. It is a distribution channel. So I don't think there was pushback because of that, of, of us wanting to start in direct consumer. If that part of the business was an issue, which totally understand um, the Omni, how you're going to become a lot more omnichannel, especially once things get back to normal. But what were some of the biggest question marks that investors had when evaluating Hilma? So I would say over and over, it was just about how do we convey efficacy and how do we make the product price accessible so there's not a big hurdle to purchase. And we heard that over and over and over again. And our answer, obviously, to the efficacy piece is primarily around the clinical research that we have invested in and finding a way that is simple enough to convey to the attention span of consumers, which is obviously quite small, why we are taking more care than what they're seeing today and are not satisfied with. So that was a main point of discussion. And then the price point, we've always felt that the main opportunity here is to enter as a mastige brand. So there's a a very crowded um, layer of premium wellness brands in the market right now, but we wanted to enter a notch below as far as price so that a broader audience could participate in this. Um, So those were probably the two biggest. That makes a lot of sense. So what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? So personally, it's tough to pick one, but professionally, I do really like competing against luck, kind of the jobs to be done framework. I think that has continued to come my lens for how it's inspired me is just how many times I've thought of it in the last like two years working on Hilma. And I think that one really has been helpful as far as a framework to lean on. And then personally, so I might have to pick two, one more recent and one kind of that 
similarly has lingered. So I really was struck by Educated, which I know is a super popular book, like last year, two years ago this time. And then I just finished the autobiography of Malcolm X, which was also pretty incredible. So I love biographies in general. That's awesome. I'm really excited because first of all, I'll have to check out all three. It sounds great. And also no previous guest has mentioned any of these before. So excited to add these to the book list. So my final question for folks is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? I think there's a fine balance being like, it's obviously very important to hustle for every near term opportunity. But I do think that it's very crucial to maintain a longer term you and not let the short-term wins or disappointments kind of impact your state of mind too much. So maybe that's generic, but it rings very true, I think. And we as a team kind of always force ourselves to like pick our heads up. And as I said, it applies to both the moments that are that feel great, but also the moments that are disappointing. No, I absolutely agree. I think that's a really great point. It's really important to have a balance when things are going bad and when things are going great too, but also to be level-headed and, and also be positive. Well, Hillary, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was fun. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Hillary. Please feel free to follow her on Instagram at Hillary K. Kortner and Hilma at Hilma underscore co. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at MikeGelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.